You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. That will be it, and we'll head into our very first week of Daniel. Uh, Now, it's surprising here that we are not going to be opening up the text of Daniel. But before you throw things at me, I promise that we're going to open up some scripture today. Uh, But we got to do a little bit of uh, background work before we do that. Now, let's say after today's over... Uh, you have, you've made some plans, right? You've made some plans. You're going to go to your, your great uncle's house, and you're going to begin to clean out his attic after he passed away many months ago. And so you get there, and you, you begin to carry out box after box of relic, and you, you learn that your uncle's kind of a weird dude, right? You learn that in the beginning, and then you just, you just go the work of clearing this attic, and you, you pick up one of these boxes. It's super dusty. And there's a bunch of cassettes in there. You get A-tracks, vinyl, and you're just, oh, this is incredible. And then you, then you move it aside, and you see underneath the box, you see this wooden chest that seems to have been there for a very long time. And I'm curious, just thinking about it, I'm sure you're curious in this hypothetical situation. It looks like it's been sealed for a number of years. And so you and your family, you gather, and you open it. And when you open it, you find a skeleton, right, inside of it. No, your uncle's not that weird. He's not that weird. You find a bunch of boxes of letters stacked upon themselves, and you are fascinated with them. Lots of letters, dust all over them, and you begin to say, what do these letters mean? What, what are they important? Who wrote them? There are names that you've never recognized or heard in your entire life. And so you are just bent on figuring out how you know what these letters are, but you don't know where to start. So what sort of advice would we give to somebody in that plausible situation? Would we say to them, hey, just read them as they are? Kind of interpret them through your own understanding? You sort of have to make your own meaning with those sorts of items. Would you tell them to read them and then infer their intent and implications through how their words made you feel? Because ultimately what matters the most is, is how those words made you feel. Or or would you say to them, read them and do your best to understand, but know this, that sometimes in life, things are a little bit too complex to to understand. And so if you're reading these words and you get lost, it probably means that you're not wise enough to understand them. And it's okay if you just kind of leave them and put them down. Now, I don't believe that any one of us would give that sort of advice. Instead, we would say to our loved ones, we would say, hey, why don't you go to the library? And why don't you do some research about the names that are written in those letters? Find out who they were. And maybe you would say, well, let's figure out when these letters were written. And you would find their envelopes. And you would trace their return addresses to figure out where they were wrote. You would find out who they were written to. Because in knowing when they were written and who they were written to, you begin to understand the words that are written on the page. Because if we don't know... When something is wrote, we might not know what a word means because words in their definition change over time. For instance, in the medieval times, if you said the word spinster, it was a reference to somebody who sewed. It was a woman, normally a single woman, who was in textile. 
But then in the late 1800s, that word got attached to something different. In the 1800s, the word spinster was attached to every unmarried woman. So if you were an unmarried woman, you were called a spinster. Now, maybe you want that title today. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to you. But, but today, that word might resemble something different entirely. Today, when you hear somebody say spinster, you might be convinced somebody who's trying to spin the news or twist the news for their own advantage. And so kind of knowing when things are written can help us read those words to a better degree. But you would also want to know about those letters, how the recipients would have read the letters. Like, what did it mean to them? How would they have understood those words when they first read them? Our advice, would it not be, would be to spend a discernible amount of time trying to, or to, to, to understand all of the context and realities around those letters so we would understand its meanings and who wrote them. And so this morning, as we open up for an extended amount of time our Bibles to a very old book that was written 2,500 years ago, we understand that this is not a, a normal old book, that it's not just any book, but it's one that we believe to be inspired by the mind and the hand of God. Might we consider then, to a greater degree of importance, the same need to find clarity and context that we might associate with learning about letters in the attic? As we read Daniel, a book that is complex in its layout, might we resolve ourselves not to read these words based upon our own interpretations, or how they resonate with our feelings, nor will we give up when their interpretation might be hard to find. But let us journey together as the people of God with the Holy Spirit to hear and understand the context of Daniel the way those who first heard it did, to hear it as it was intended to be heard, not how we might intend it to be heard. And to do that, we're going to have to do a little bit of a background check, a little background work here of the timelines and the people and the events and the context. Now, I would tell you, uh, I don't see people fall asleep during my sermons. I know that some of you have admitted it to me afterwards. Complete forgiveness for you. I understand today might be a little bit of a, of a sort of information day. I might be looking at your eyes, so don't worry about that. But we're going to build some context, understand some the, the context so we understand the words and who they were written to. And so when we study uh, Daniel, the groundwork we need to understand is, is what is its purpose? And so that's what we're going to talk about today, what its purpose is. We're going to discover some of the history and the context around it. And then we're going to talk about two events that shape the life of Daniel, one that is recorded in the book of Daniel and the other that is not recorded in the book. And so Daniel might be a, a, a favorite book of one of yours. Maybe you've enjoyed this book for, for years. It's full of incredible stories that have high drama in them that reveal memorable characters. We might have grew up learning about Daniel in Sunday school or at our home. Stories about Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the fiery furnace. Or maybe you might remember a floating hand that writes on the wall. These are the sorts of storylines that might rival some of the greatest found in our fantasy movies today, like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or other movies. And for many, there's a great temptation to, to read these 
stories, these collections, and sort of make them into fables, stories that convey to us wisdom and morality. We read them on the human plane, and we gather from them in their individual parts and stories what might be encouraging and good for our personal lives and our own happiness. We might study the lives of the people in Daniel with effort to find patterns and habits that we can incorporate in our own life for betterment. But I think it's a mistake to read Daniel like that. Reading in Daniel in such a way actually makes us lose sight on what the book is primarily about. Because the book of Daniel is ultimately not about Daniel at all. It's not about his three friends at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not about any person or any king. It's a story that reflects God and his faithfulness and his ultimate victory in the world. There are certainly fascinating stories that bring instruction and wisdom to our lives in practical ways, but the main purpose of the book of Daniel is to reveal to a greater degree of who God is, his character, his purpose, and his work. And sometimes we are guilty of taking these Old Testament stories and building them into great cliches, and we certainly have done that with the book of Daniel. Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, we need a dare to be Daniel, the sort of idea that if we would just do the sort of things that Daniel did, then things will go well for us. The problem is that even if we act like Daniel, it doesn't change the nature of my heart. It's not a remedy for my sin. The problem is it doesn't fix us. And Daniel himself would probably find that cliche to be woefully unsuitable because the greatness of Daniel wasn't his courage or his wisdom or his power. The only great thing about Daniel was his faithful trust in the greatness of his God. Don't do what Daniel did, but let us believe in who Daniel believed in. And so the story of Daniel, as I said, is a story of God and his ultimate victory in the world. God is the sovereign Lord of history. He is the one that makes kingdoms rise, and he is the one that makes kingdoms fall. And so from the very opening chapter of this book, where Daniel goes in exile to Babylon, to the closing chapters that contain visions of the future, we see how God will have victory in the world. And so this book obviously was written by a man named Daniel. It was written in the 6th century BC, so 600 to 500 BC. And it records the events of the life of Daniel, the visions that he saw in his time in exile that began around 605 BC until the very third year of a rule of a king named Cyrus in 536 BC. Now, the book deals with the rise and the falls of various worldly kingdoms and empires, but all of those events are seen through the lens of God's sovereign control. And thus, it serves the purpose of encouragement for the Jewish people during this critical time in their history. The Jews are in exile in this moment. They're away from their home, much like they were in Egypt when they were in slavery. They're at the hands of pagan rulers who cared very little about God and very little about his people. And their situation was so dire that it wouldn't, we wouldn't bat an eye hearing that they questioned God's goodness, where he was in his control. We wouldn't blame them a bit. Now, there are two events that shape the life of Daniel. One that we find in the first chapter of the book of Daniel's events recorded in chapter one here. 
about a great king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar held power in a kingdom called Babylon. Maybe you've heard of Babylon. Babylon was closely related to the Assyrian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebopolesser, uh, led a revolt against the Assyrian king, and he defeated him at a battle called Nineveh in 1620 BC. You can read about it. That's what I love about the Old Testament. This is history. You can read about the Battle of Nineveh in your history books. In 620 BC, he defeats the Assyrian king, and the Babylonian Empire gains much power. Now, the greatest threat to the Babylonian Empire would eventually be the Persians and the Persian empires. They would end up conquering the Babylonian Empire somewhere near the end of the 6th century. But in the moment that Daniel was written, Egypt is their greatest threat. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, would become an important crossroads between these two megapowers in the day. You can see on the map their connection and how Judah would be an important access or access or a asset to have. Now, surprisingly, in this time, that the kingdom of Judah is actually pro-Egypt. And that's hard to believe after we know that they were held in captive in slavery for so many years. And so in 605 BC, the Babylonians subdue Judah. They don't destroy it, but they just subdue Judah and the city of Jerusalem, and they become what is called a vassal state. They are under the Babylonian rule and under Babylonian law. Nebuchadnezzar resides in power, but there came a day that Nebuchadnezzar's father died. And when he died, Nebuchadnezzar made this whirlwind trip of 500 miles in two weeks to go back to the city of Babylon and then back to Jerusalem. And on his way back to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar took some of the choice captives in the city of Jerusalem. And among them were a young, vibrant boy named Daniel. And Daniel would not see his home again until he was well into his 90s. And so for most of his life, Daniel was subjugated by the rule of foreign kings. He lived in life in exile away from his home. And in his time in exile, he displays a type of faithfulness. Amongst the whims of foreign rulers, a faithfulness to God that should all make us question the worth and the might of Daniel's God, that he would love and obey him so much in such difficulty. The second event that shaped the life of Daniel isn't mentioned in Daniel at all. In fact, it begins before Daniel was born. In 6040 BC, there was a a king in the southern kingdom named Ammon, and he was killed by his own court two years into his rule. He was so wicked and so corrupt that his very own servants and officials had enough of him. They put an end to him. Ammon was a descendant of another king named King Manasseh, and Manasseh ruled the kingdom of Judah for some 55 years. It was a reign that was full of disobedience, of vile practices, of idol worshiping, and outright corruption. And what the Bible records is that Ammon was even worse than his father Manasseh. And so the people of God in that time, after the officials kill Ammon, they want to keep the throne in the line of David. So despite all the grief and hardship they experienced with Manasseh and Ammon, they put his eight-year-old son, Josiah, on the throne to rule the southern kingdom of Judah. And this turns out to be one of the greatest moves 
in the Israelite histories because King Josiah's heart turns towards the Lord and he becomes set on doing the will of God on earth, which leads the people of God to repent and revival swept through the land. And we read about those events in 2 Kings chapter 22. And so we'll read this as our text today and bring understanding to it. In verse 1, it says this. Josiah was eight years old, and when, and when he began to reign, and, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of, his, of David, his father. David is not his literal father, but he comes from the line of David. And he did not turn aside to the left or to the light. He was faithful. In his 18th year, King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Mishalah, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, and the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. King Josiah picked up again a work that began under another king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah began to bring order to the temple, to repair it, to purify it. It had come under grave malpractice in his day. There were lots of ungodly practices being done in the temple. And Hezekiah sought to clean it. Yet, after his reign, Manasseh undid all the reforms that Hezekiah spent so much time working for. And Josiah picks up again this work of purifying the temple. And as they begin the work on the temple, Shaphan, his secretary, was given a book found by the high priest, Helikiah, that turns out to be the law of Moses. Now, this is extraordinary. What it means is that the people of God had become so disobedient and unfaithful in their time 
that they forgot about the very covenant that God had made with them through the law of God. The law which defined them as God's chosen people for their own joy. In the temple, there was always supposed to be a copy of the law of God next to the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments. And every king was to have a copy of the law next to the throne as it is written in Deuteronomy. Now, somewhere along the way, the people stopped caring about God. They stopped caring about his word. It's not that they didn't practice parts of of the law or acknowledge parts of the law, but they didn't care about where it came from or knowing where it came from. And then they began to practice idol worshiping. This sort of slow fade where they started to disobey the word of God that led to them forgetting about it entirely. The complete law of God was supposed to be read every seven years to the nation of Israel at a feast called the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's supposed to be read publicly. The last time that the law was read read publicly before Josiah discovered it, it was written uh, in the book of 2 Chronicles. It was spoken by a king named Jehoshaphat. And that was 500 years before Josiah stumbles upon it in the temple. Now, this is fast. It doesn't mean that the book wasn't read, that the law wasn't read somewhere along the way. It just means that the scripture so scarcely records God's people reading his law publicly that we would just assume that it was not a normal thing to do. And so Josiah has Shaphan, his secretary, read it to him. Now, how does it come to be read to him? If you notice that when Shaphan brings this book to him. He doesn't bring the the law of God and say, look what I found. No, what does Shaphan do? He goes through the business of the day. Like, hey, just to note, they took the money, they did this thing, and then we did this thing. And oh, by the way, uh, yeah, Hilkiah found a book. And I read it, and it's interesting. And Josiah said, well, read it to me. And when Shaphan read the book, instantly, instantly, Josiah knew what it was. And it says that in his distress, in his great grief, he began to tear his clothes. Now, in that day, in that culture, if one tore their clothes, it was a public expression of grief, of mourning. It conveyed a deep conviction of sin and remorse. And Josiah had no idea what to do next. It says that he sent the servants to go before the Lord. Josiah had never been taught how to be in relationship with the one true God. He didn't know what to do. And so he sent his servants and others to see, hey, what what is God going to do to us? What do we have in store for us, the people of God, for our disobedience? Now, what happened next is extraordinary because the scripture records that revival broke out all over the land. Not revivalism as we might think of it in its Pentecostal form, this emotionalism, but revivalism. People began to read the law. They centered themselves on the law of God. Many reforms began to be made. Idol worshiping was outlawed. Pagan temples were brought down. Josiah led the people of God to seek their God, and it was good. And of those impacted and renewed by Josiah's thirst for God were two parents, 
though we don't know their name, we do believe that they love the one true God because they named their son Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. Now, not implying it's contemporary meaning today when we say only God can judge me. That's not what it means. Daniel means that he knows that it was God that will judge him and that he must answer God. Most of Daniel's childhood would have been under the reign of Josiah, under the revival of Josiah. And so when we read about the great moral strength of Daniel and the courage of his character, we must remember that God, the God in heaven, had sovereignly ordained that he would be blessed by the influence of Josiah. God's preparation and protection of Daniel made him ready to take his great stand against the corrupting influences of Babylon. The word of God had an effect on him, but first it had an effect on Josiah in his heart. He repented. He turned towards God, and he never turned back. The scripture says he didn't turn right or he didn't turn left. And from that one man's love for God and his obedience to his word, revival broke out over the land, which created a fertile place for Daniel to learn the word of God and grow to love it and grow to love his God. There is no Daniel without King Josiah. And there is no Josiah without the word of God. And there is no word of God without a good and loving God giving it to his people for their joy in his glory. And so as we start the book of Daniel, might I give you an exhortation that we would take the word of God seriously. Last week we laid out a, what would be the theme of our year and probably the theme of all of our subsequential years, that we would keep precious and preach the word of God. Maybe today you'll go home and maybe your plans aren't to go to your uncle's house and to clean his attic and find all of his dusty relics. But maybe you'll go home and on your dresser you might find a dusty Bible that for years you've walked believing in but never really knowing. In fact, you may have even centered your identity around it, but you have forgot its necessity. Maybe years of waywardness and a life that's focused on your own kingdom and your own way have made you regard it as trivial. And maybe it's a book that gets buried under all the business of life, like Shaphan, that we only think of it when everything else is done first. It could be that over the years that we've found it difficult to read. Maybe we've not experienced the power of it because we've tried to interpret it rather than having the word of God interpret us. My prayer for us and you and me in this new year is that God would renew our conviction in our hearts of the joy that is his word, not just to be in it, but to grow to love it, to keep his word precious. Most every renewal in the history of God's people has begun when the people of God take his word seriously. When we read it in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our churches. When we center our lives around it and its wisdom, the foundations of Protestantism, which you and I are Protestants, the foundations of Protestants were created by a group of people who took the word of God so seriously that they died to have it translated in everyday languages so that the people of God could hear it and know it and love it. I believe that every one of us in here 
wants to have a greater degree of faith in our lives. I believe that everyone in here wants to trust God more with who we are and what we do. It all starts with us taking his word seriously. And it starts with you, and it starts with me, and it's in you, and it's in me, and from there it goes out to our neighbors, our families, our community, and the world. And maybe the first thing that you can do in this season is maybe in a season of long apathy towards the word of God, maybe your first move is to pray that God would kindle your heart to desire to read the word. That maybe that is your prayer going forward, that Lord, will you make my heart love your word? Daniel, friends, is a necessary read for you and I. It is a necessary read for you and I. It teaches us what it looks like to be faithful in a time and place where the people of God are not honored or not revered. In fact, in that time, many were adversarial towards the people of God. Daniel teaches us through his faithfulness to God what a life of faith looks like. A life that isn't hopeless, a life that isn't begrudging, a life that isn't angry and fearful or worldly or selfish, but a life that has joy in it because of the one that we believe and trust in. And so this morning, let us take seriously the word and seriously this pursuit. Daniel grew up in a time where Josiah brought forth the word and it was a season of preparation for him for the next season of his life. Maybe our reading in Daniel is a season of preparation for you for all the next seasons of our lives. Will we pray? Will we encounter his word? I say to you today, if you have trouble understanding the word, then Let's do it together. In our Sunday groups, we meet every single Sunday, and we go through every text that I teach on this stage, and, and we talk about it in community and how it affects our lives and what it means, and we can help you to understand what these texts mean. In fact, we just put together these nice little booklets that you can get to help you study the book of Daniel. But maybe you're like me. Like, maybe you're like me. Hopefully not. But maybe you're like me, and, and then when you don't do something that you know that you're supposed to do for a great number of seasons, you become guilty and you become embarrassed, right? And in that guilt and shame, it is hard for you to do the very thing that you want to do. There was a season that I, I didn't spend time with my family in devotion, and I felt really guilty and very shameful about that, and it, it actually made me not want to do it. But friends, can I tell you, you don't have to do it extreme. It doesn't have to be you're reading the Bible every day for six chapters at a time. Maybe for you, it's starting with five or six verses and praying that God would make his word come alive. Friends, we need his word. We need revival in our hearts. We need revival in our churches we need revival in our communities. And I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about people who take the word of God seriously and live it. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today and we confess that we have utterly fallen short of your standard. That Lord, there are ways that we've lived this week and this month and this year that have not honored you, that have not loved you, that have not reflected you into the world. And so Lord, we are grateful today 
to know that you are the type of God that is faithful to us, who tells us that if we're faithful to confess our sins, that you are faithful to forgive us. That we can be like King Josiah, who walked in waywardness and disobedience, but was brought to life through your word and spirit, Lord. That we can confess our sins, believing that you forgive them, and that you make them white and pure and forgotten. And so, Lord, will you birth within us a conviction and a desire to read your word? Will you help us to read it as it is? Will you give us people in our lives that help it make sense to us? And Lord, will you stir within us a desire to do it together as the people of God? Lord, use Daniel in this season to prepare our hearts for our future seasons that we might be as faithful to you as Daniel was. Help us to trust you, Lord, above everything else in our life. And we pray this through the blood of Jesus. Amen.